0: and click on the Building Fund tab. Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Together, let's prepare for an amazing tomorrow. Thanks and God bless. Okay. Well, we're going to continue through 1 Peter chapter 4, and we're going to go from verses 7 through 11. Let's read that, and then we'll talk about it. I love the way it starts off. The end of all things is at hand. (laughs) Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as God's stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Well, first let's talk about the end of the world, and then we can talk about being sober-minded, and we'll talk about being people of love, and people who serve. That'll be kind of the things that we're going to talk about at the beginning. And, And, you know, when you hear a phrase, the end of all things is at hand, I don't know what comes to your mind, but a lot of what comes to my mind are the things that I've heard concerning the end times, whether it's late great planet Earth by Hal Lindsey. Who remembers that one? Boy, that was a long time ago. Or things along that line, this biblical prophecy of this doomsday and how things are going to end. But you see, this doesn't mean that this space-time universe continuum is about to come to a shuddering halt. Really, think about how that wouldn't be an evidence of a God who created and loved and is renewing all things. And we'll talk about that a little bit more. But what's happening here is that God has already begun in Jesus the process of, for lack of a better word, cosmic renewal. That through Jesus, he is now renewing everything and for all things to be come new there has to be an end to some old things and that's why he says that the end of all things is now at hand is because he's really bringing this understanding that the way that things were is now at hand having its last moments because the way jesus is doing things is now taking precedence and so it helps us to see things in this way, that the renewal is what's taking place. It's a foretaste of the renewal of the human lives that are being changed through Jesus' death and resurrection. It's how humanity is being redeemed, is being brought back into relationship with God. It's about how the kingdom of heaven is now present among us, showing up in his church. The end is speaking of those former things because this new kingdom is breaking through and emerging. The beginning of the chapter really kind of helps us to see a little bit more of this because he talks about, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. In other words, Jesus went through this death went through this suffering to bring about this and you're going through the same thing and it's really talking about that end that is coming up upon us, okay? He's talking about what Jesus has done and how what he has done is causing something new to take place. The end of all things is not the destruction of all things, but God making all things new. So the end of all things is also the beginning of the new things that's taking place. And doesn't it make sense then, if the end is happening, like he says here, if the end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled, sober-minded, for the sake of your prayers. If everything's coming to an end, why do we have to worry about all these things? Why do I have to be self-controlled? The end's coming. Well, it's because it's actually the beginning of something else. So our sober-mindedness and so, our vigilance is for what God is now doing, and there is a passage in Second Peter chapter two or chapter three, I think it is, where he says, where everything will be burned with fire and will be dissolved the nations or the universe will dissolve with fire, and so people look at that and say, "See everything's going to be consumed, but really." again, that speaks more of a purifying than of a destroying. Because Jesus has come to make all things new. Well, did you come to make all things new? First, you got to destroy them, and then they become new? Or were they destroyed at the cross? And were they made new from that point on? And I believe that makes sense when we go through scripture. I think that you find that this actually fits in line with all the things that Jesus has said and why we are to continue the things that we're doing as if we are establishing and bringing about the kingdom of God right now. In in Acts chapter 3, there's a passage that kind of talks about this. In verse 18, it says, but what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. The times of refreshing, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke about by the mouth of the holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from the brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And so here we see that there is this pointing to the renewal of all things that's tied to the person of Christ, that's tied to christ was appointed for us this is the promise this is the renewal this is what god was talking about and so when we start thinking the end of all things is at hand we're seeing a shift from the way the world was before christ to the way the world is now with christ and the former things are done behold all things have become new It's something that happens to us individually, and it's something that's happening to the world. Now, you look at the world, and it doesn't look like all things are becoming new. It looks like things are still kind of messed up, and they still are, but that's part of the change, and that's why he goes on, and he says, therefore, be sober-minded, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers, If we are moving towards restoration and not towards destruction, then it's going to be important that we have self-control and that we be sober-minded. The idea of sober-minded means to be alert. It's not like, well, don't be intoxicated. It's being aware, being cognitive of what is happening. And so self-controlled means living a controlled life, controlled by what? By our new faith in Christ. That's what he's been talking about throughout this book. Sober-minded means aware of what Christ is doing. And it says, do this for the sake of your prayers. Isn't that curious? That being sober-minded, being self-controlled is actually gonna benefit your prayer. And I just think that's interesting how clear thinking and self discipline and prayer are all connected. And I think we know this to be true. I think you know that when you are showing control over yourself and when you are aware of the things or the sensitivity that of what's going on around you that it affects how you pray. When you go and talk to someone like Terry and you're in the middle of maybe her struggle, it affects how you pray. Why? Because you're aware of what she's going through. If you see the needs that are happening even in our country right now through this election, it makes you aware of how you need to pray. It affects how you pray. It gives you more uh, motivation. When your kids are sick and when you're aware of that illness, it makes you more apt to go to the Lord in prayer. It affects your prayer. And so this self-control and the sober-minded, it just shows that our lives are all about this relationship with God and that the things that we do and how we are aware of God in the things that we do affect how we communicate with God. When someone says, I have a hard time praying, I think, are you aware of what's going on around you? Are are you aware of the people in your life? Are you alert to the things that are there, the needs that are around you? You see, because if you know what's happening, you know there's lots of things to pray for. I mean, we prayed here, and we just touched. I know a lot of us could pray a lot longer because there's a lot more things that come to mind. When Karina and I all sit down and pray, she'll hold back because she could keep going, right? Because she can pray, and she knows, well, I know I'm with you, so I know you're not as spiritual as me, so I'll keep praying. She doesn't say that. But there's so many things that we could pray about. Why? Because we're aware because we're sober-minded, because we see clearly how things are. And so when someone has a hard time finding something to pray for, it usually means you're not aware. And it's not a condemnation. It's hopefully to help you see that maybe what you need to do is be awake to the things that are going on. And maybe the self-control needs to take place so that you can see that maybe your life is being indulgent and consuming, and so you're unaware of what's happening around you. Because that's what usually happens when I'm self-indulgent. I'm not thinking of others. I'm just thinking of myself. So I'm not sober-minded. And so it affects my prayers in a negative way. And so that idea of sober-minded... It's something that's interesting in how it's supposed to take place. Because when I think of the being sober-minded or being... Yeah, when I think of being alert or sober-minded, prayer is not the first thing that comes to my mind. You know, all right, be alert, everybody. Oh, yeah, you're talking about prayer. Is that what comes to your mind? But that's really what should be. I'm so aware That I'm so communicating to God. And we see a time in the Gospels where this idea of being alert takes place. When Jesus went to the garden before he was betrayed and he was praying all night and Peter was there with him. And Jesus says, Wait here. Okay? I'm going to go and pray with me. Stay awake. Be alert. Be sober minded. And we know that Jesus went and prayed and then he would come back and an hour later and they had fallen asleep. And he said, couldn't you watch? Couldn't you be awake? Couldn't you be alert for one hour? And and there was this warning, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. You see, That's why we have to have self-control. That's why we have to be sober-minded because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And what strengthens the flesh is prayer. What strengthens us is this sober-mindedness, this being alert, this self-control, not living indulgent lives. And we see this idea of being sober-minded throughout This book in chapter one, verse 13, Peter said, therefore, prepare your minds for action and being sober minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So in the midst of your struggles, you're alert by being sober minded that there is hope in the middle of the struggle that is given through Jesus Christ, but you have to be sober-minded. You have to be alert to those things. You see, if you're going through something and you're feeling like, man, there's just, it's bleak and I can't see the end of this. And I don't know how many times uh, that happens to you, but it happens to me pretty often where I'll go through something and I'll just, man, this is messed up. And all I do is think, this is bad, and this isn't going to get any better. And I, and I just start spinning out, and I have to become sober-minded. I have to wait a second, snap out of it, Sam. <laughs> Wake up. Where is Jesus? Because that's where your hope is. And I love how it talks about hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. There is grace to be found when Jesus is revealed. Be sober-minded in this grace. In chapter 5, which we'll get to, it says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Alert prayer sees the opposition to your soul. Alert prayer is aware that there is more taking place. And so this idea of being sober-minded is so important to this life, this new life that God is giving. It's so important to the transformation. It's so important to what he talks about here when he says the end of all things are at hand. Well, we better be alert then for the things that God is doing. We better be ready living that life so that when God is working, we can step in and do that work. And that's really where he starts pushing us to. He starts pushing to this place of, okay, you're sober-minded, right? You're going to be self-controlled for the sake of your prayers. And then he says in verse 8, "'Above all, keep loving one another. "'Earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins.'" Above all, keep loving one another. Above all. Above everything else, keep loving one another. And I I think, well, who do I have to love? Because there's some people who've hurt me and I don't really want to love them. I don't want bad to happen to them most of the time. But to love them, that's difficult. But above all, we're to love one another. Now, he's definitely speaking to those who are followers of Jesus because there should be this kind of unity. But think of how divisive the church is. And I think about it, my own attitude towards people because there's some people I strongly disagree with, and how they see the God I worship. I strongly disagree with them, but above all, I need to love them. Above my disagreement, well, I, I think they're they're manipulating the Scripture and they're they're bringing harm to the image of who Jesus really is. Well, that's good. I can make those things know. But above all, you need to love them. Above all, love one another. And then he says that this love covers a multitude of sins. And so I was thinking, how does love cover a multitude of sins? How does my love for someone else cover a bunch of sins? I can see Jesus' love covering a bunch of sin, right? Because he died so we could be forgiven. But how does my loving someone else cover a multitude of sins? Well, you see, if I love someone, then I'm not going to gossip about them. So I will cover sin by not gossiping. It'll keep me from being slanderous towards that person. So by me loving someone, I won't go into that place it'll keep me from coveting what someone else has it'll keep me from being jealous it'll keep me from being just angered or or moving me to a place where i want to react and respond in a way that isn't healthy you see love covers a multitude of sins and what it really does is it covers your sin in the potential to bring harm to that other person Oh yeah, I might bring forgiveness. I, I'm going to forgive them. And so their sin is covered in that sense. But I think really what it does is it covers you from sinning against these other people. That's how love covers a multitude of sins. It keeps you from going to the places you shouldn't go to. It keeps you from talking in the places you shouldn't talk. Saying the things you shouldn't say thinking the things you shouldn't do. You see, love covers all those things. If we really love, we'd stop thinking, doing, acting that way. And that's where I think love covers those sins. It stops us from going to those places. And then it tells us to show hospitality to one another and to do it without grumbling. I love that he throws that in there because it's one thing to be hospitable, but then you can do it and be grumbling. My, you're eating a lot. You know, I mean, what you just you know, you offer someone some dinner. It's like, oh, you took the last piece of bread. I see. You know, you, you grumble about it. It's like you know, it's one thing to be hospitable, but to do it without grumbling. The whole idea is that this is the way that we grow and move forward, and this is how we prepare our lives for the end that is at hand. This is how the new shows up and the end stops. The end of all things is at hand. Why? Because we're living a new life. We're walking in the resurrected life of Christ. We now love one another above all things. We are going to be hospitable and it's going to be without grumbling. And I, I always think about these things, about hospitality being so important, about unity being so important, and being so neglected, um, at least in the church as a whole, as we see it. we We spend so much time thinking about if we know the right things, And then this idea of hospitality comes in. And hospitality is just being gracious. It's being generous. And this idea of being gracious is really what he moves into. Each of you has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. That word gift is kind of difficult for us because when we think of a gift, I think of someone handing me something or you've been given a gift. Oh, I have the gift of, you know, whatever it is, giving, or I have a gift of hospitality. But really that word gift would probably more correctly be translated grace. You see, each has received grace. That's really what he's talking about. Use it then to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. See, we've been given grace. Be good stewards of that grace. And that's the idea of hospitality is being gracious. It's showing grace. It's giving of ourselves to someone, not because they deserve it, but because we want to give to them, which is What God has done for us. Whoever speaks, verse 11, as one who speaks the oracles of God. And so here we start moving from people who love to actually people who do. As we're receiving this gift, showing gracious attitude towards one another, showing hospitality towards another. Now we're people who serve. This grace that has been given to us is now being extended to other people. Grace And now it shows up in the things we do, shows up in the things we say, and it shows up in the things we do word indeed, the gracious in how we speak gracious in what we do. And that's where he moves us to whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. It's such a strange thing. I mean, we're to admonish one another. We're to encourage one another. We're to confess our sins to one another. We're to instruct one another. We're to stir each other up to love and good deeds. These words and these acts of encouragement are, are being focused on here, because whoever does these things, Jesus is glorified because of those things. And the idea of Jesus being glorified is so unique here, because it's not like God is up in heaven saying, yes, give me the glory. Actually, what he's doing is saying, be kind and good and generous to one another, and that's good for me. You see, who's being seen when you're being gracious? You are. When you're showing kindness, who do people see as being kind? They see you. But God says, it's me. Bye, Sherry. God says, that's how I get glorified. There's no ego. God isn't saying, okay, you can be gracious, but don't take credit for it. Who else is taking credit for it? If you baked the bread, you made the bread. Oh, no, it wasn't me. I hope it was you, because if it wasn't you, who baked the bread, right? And if it's bad, I'm going to blame you. I'm not going to blame God, right? It's like those people, musicians who always say, God gave me this song. And then you hear it and you say, no, God is the God of love. He wouldn't do that to anybody. You know, it's like we're so wanting to, oh, no, it's not me, it's not me. I don't want any glory, but you don't understand when you do what you're supposed to and people see that you're being generous and see that you're being kind in your words and your actions, then God is glorified through you. And we would benefit by understanding this because you're speaking the very words of God. You're speaking the oracle of God. You're serving as God gives you strength. And so we're encouraged to bear one another's burdens, to welcome one another, to serve one another. Who's doing the serving? You are. Who's being glorified? God is. Oh no, it's not me. Yes, it was you. It has to be you, otherwise, God isn't glorified. What God's glorified isn't that you say it wasn't you. What God's glorified in is that you actually did it without grumbling. We're gracious. You actually did what you were supposed to do as a follower of Jesus. You said the things that he wants you to say. You did the things he wants you to do and he is up there saying, that's what I want. And he's glorified in it even though you're the one doing it. And it's not like he gets the crown and you get nothing. No, he's sharing what he has With you. He has already extended his grace to us, and now we are sharing it with one another. And the whole thing is pointing to this kind of relational aspect where we are in a living relationship with God, and it is supposed to affect the relationships of everyone and everything around us. That it is supposed to have an effect on the core of who you are. You see, if you belong to Jesus, then it changes something about you that affects everything about you. And so every now and then, maybe it's good to stop and say, has the change taken place deep enough? Am I really changed or am I just going to church? You know, I go to church regularly, but when I go to work, I'm really the same person I was. I don't have different values. I don't try to be gracious. I'm not trying to serve. I'm not trying to be an example of Jesus. I'm just trying to be me, but at work. When I go to church, I'll clean up my talk. I'll put on the good clothes. And I'll try and put a a cover on it. But you see, what he's talking about is something that's taking place At the core of who we are. And that's why the end of all things is at hand. Because there is something dramatic that takes place when Jesus becomes a part of our lives. There is indeed an end. He's talked about baptism before. We've talked about this idea of death. There is a dying that has to happen so that a life can be born new in what God is doing. And by this... And through this, that's how we respond. That's how we bring glory to God. And it says in verse uh, 11 there, the end of 11, that in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. The naturally, the natural tendency of this world that has come to an end is that of conquering, being selfish, succeeding for yourself. But Jesus has come to serve the world. He's come to bring generosity. He's come to bring charity. And that love will cover a multitude of sins because as we start loving as he loved, it's going to change the course Of history. It's going to transform us. It's going to transform our families. It's going to transform our relationships. It can transform then our country and it can transform the world. There is not much love I see going on in our current election. I don't see Hillary loving Donald. I don't see Donald loving Hillary. I don't see Republicans loving Democrats. I don't see Democrats loving Republicans. And I don't see Jesus in that behavior at all. And when I see someone actually caring, loving, then it stands out. And I think that stands out above. You see, whoever wins this election does not have the power that Peter is talking about here where the end has come to all things and this new has come about. Whatever happens in this election, it will not stop in one moment, in one little bit, the work of God from continuing. The work of God will not be hindered by any man, by any party, by any king, by any government. It's not going to stop it. It's not going to hinder it at one bit. But you know what's hindering is when people who name themselves as Christ don't, above all things, love one another. That slows it down, and that does not bring glory to God. What brings glory is above all things love one another. Above all things, show this grace. Serve one another. This is how God is glorified. This is how he's seen. When it talks about glorified, it means he is seen. And so Peter, again, is being very subversive and the area where he's talking about because he's talking about a place where Rome was governing, and he very well meant the end of all things. This government, it's it's doomed. It was. The end of the Roman government came, was a hundred years later, a couple hundred years later, but it began here. The same thing is true throughout history, and it should be true. And I think if we can grab hold of this, that will be true for us as well. But I'm telling you, we gotta let go of a lot of the old if the new is gonna take place. And some of that old that has to be let go of is some of the traditions that we've held on to that we think is what Jesus stands for. I, I um, was talking with someone about the political arena and they mentioned the idea well you know this candidate is against abortion and this one is for abortion and that was kind of their litmus test you know and my thoughts were well has any president been able to stop what is happening in society and the answer is no. Has any law been able to stop the momentum of what is happening in our society? And the answer is no. Whether it's abortion, whether it's same sex marriage, you know, all the things that have been put out there to try and stop these things have failed. And we keep trying to reestablish things that didn't work thinking that, well, no, this is right, so I need to make my stand here. But what we don't do is what I think the gospel does. You see, when you're showing hospitality to someone, when you're being gracious to someone, when you're involved with the life of someone who maybe is pregnant, unwanted pregnancy, but you're involved with their life, You see, now you have a voice in their life. When you help someone to learn or educate someone about what's going on instead of condemning them for what they may do, then that's hospitality. Then that's being gracious. That's extending grace to them. And now you actually have an opportunity to change what's happening. And so the the answer is, what do we want to see? Well, I'd love to see... A time where no child was aborted. I'd love to see the time when every child born had a family. I'd love to see the time when there was no neglect and no no abuse. I'd love to see a time when these things didn't happen. So how does that take place? Is it going to be by passing laws? Or is it going to be by engaging with people and helping them to want those same things? And that's where transformation takes place. That's where change takes place. And we keep trying to do it a way that may have worked 100 years ago, but it doesn't work today. And we keep wanting to regain what we had, but we don't realize the reason we don't have what we had 100 years ago is because what happened 100 years ago didn't work. There was a reason people did what they did, and it was because there was not the light of the world in the church for them to see clearly They saw tradition that didn't care about their circumstances and their lives, and so they chose something else. And I believe that's to be true. When the church started becoming a means of condemnation instead of an extension of God's grace, I think the world looked for something better because condemnation didn't look like a God that they could believe in. And it's not a God who we can believe in. And so I think that there's a lot happening here, even though it's not direct, this idea of hospitality, this idea of loving one another, this idea of giving the voice and that gracious voice of God and serving one another, this is how the world has changed. This is how we're gonna change our country not by posting things, not by condemning things, but by living an example that people want to follow. Any questions? I got my soapbox at the end there. Any thoughts or questions on the end of the world? You have a question? No? (laughs) No? She always has good questions. Okay, then, let's pray. Father, it's so easy to read, above all things, love one another and be hospitable, but it's not always easy to do. And it always requires us to extend ourselves beyond our comfort, and it always requires us to give what we don't have naturally. So really what it requires is for us to bend our knee and ask you to supply the things that we lack so that we can be your voice, so that we can serve with the strength that you give, so that we can, above all things, love others and show hospitality. And God, I pray that we would do that. I pray that more than we would learn all the right things, we would live in line with who you are. Lord, that's how we know we believe the right things. And I pray for your church, God, in the United States and in this country that is so divided. I pray, Father, that above all things, we would love one another. I I pray, God, that we would put aside the differences that if we would see in a large way, uh, they're just not as important as we make them out to be. So I pray, God, you give us eyes to see and hearts to understand the things that we talked about today, that they would become a reality in our lives.